Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret of the dead come back? The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness and then a profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body and especially upon the face of the victim were the pest ban which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men. And the whole seizure, progress and termination of the disease were the incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress or egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons. There were improvisatori. There were ballet dances. There were musicians. There was beauty. There was wine. All these, and security, were within. Without was the Red Death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. But first, let me tell of the rooms in which it was held. There were seven, an imperial suite, in many palaces, however, such suites form a long and straight vista, while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand, so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here the case was very different, as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bizarre. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every twenty or thirty yards, and at each turn a novel effect. To the right and left, in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow Gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass, whose colour varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. Then, at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows, the second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. 
The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, folding in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the colour of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood colour. Now, in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum, amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro or depended from the roof. There was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite there stood, opposite to each window, a heavy tripod, bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illumined the room, and thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western or black chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme, and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang, and when the minute hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that at the lapse of an hour the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to the sound, and thus the waltzers perforce ceased their evolutions, and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company and while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows as if in confused reverie or meditation. But when the echoes had fully ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled, as if at their own nervousness and folly, and made whispering vows each to the other that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion, and then, after the lapse of sixty minutes, which embrace three thousand and six hundred seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock, and then, with the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before, but in spite of these things it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the Duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colours and effects. He disregarded the decora of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric lustre. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed in great part the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great fate, and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders, 
be sure they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm, much of which has since been seen in Hernani. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies such as the madman fashions. There was much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked in fact a multitude of dreams, and these the dreams writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And anon, there strikes the ebony clock which stands in the hall of the velvet, and then for a moment all is still, and all is silent save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff-frozen as they stand, but the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant, and a light, half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells, and the dreams live, and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many-tinted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods, but to the chamber which lies most westwardly of the seven. There are now none of the maskers who venture, for the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-coloured panes, and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls, and to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life, and the revel went whirlingly on, until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock, and then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzes were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock, and thus it happened, perhaps, that more of thought crept with more of time into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who revelled, and thus too it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before, and the rumour of this new presence having spread itself whisperingly around. There arose at length from the whole company a buzz or murmur expressive of disapprobation and surprise, then finally of terror, of horror, and of disgust. In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had out-heroded Herod, and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the hearts of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion. Even with the utterly lost, 
to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company indeed seemed now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat, and yet all this might have been endured if not approved by the mad revellers around, but the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the red death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow with all the features of the face was besprinkled with the scarlet horror. When the eyes of Prince Prospero fell upon this spectral image, which, with a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers, he was seen to be convulsed in the first moment with a strong shudder either of terror or distaste, but in the next his brow reddened with rage. Who dares, he demanded hoarsely of the courtiers who stood near him, who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements. It was in the eastern or blue chamber in which stood the Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the Prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed with the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the Prince with a group of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand, and now— with deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole party, there were found none who would put forth hand to seize him, so that unimpeded he passed within a yard of the prince's person, and while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the centres of the rooms to the walls, he made his way uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first, through the blue chamber to the purple, through the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet, ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him, on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger, and had approached in rapid impetuosity to within three or four feet of the retreating figure, when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped, gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which instantly afterwards fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then, summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revellers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask which they handled with so violent a rudeness, untenanted by any 
tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revellers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall, and the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay, and the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness and decay, and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. Everybody dies, don't they? That was The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe, and it was recommended by Carol Rios. Now, Carol's a, a frequent commentator, a commenter, on the YouTube channel. She's a member of the YouTube channel. She recommended that in September last year, and I've got around to doing it. Pretty short, isn't it? But, I mean, you can't beat a bit of Poe. Um, I, I must admit, as a younger person, I read Poe sporadically, but I never sat down and devoured his complete works, etc., and I haven't done that yet. But when I come back to um, recording bits of his work for the podcast, I must admit I really like it. Um, I, it appeals to the gothic in me, you know, I really like gothic stuff. So we, um, The House of Usher is one of my faves, that's one of his. And I prefer that to his, um, we've done Telltale Heart and The Black Cat. And these are kind of set in, in his contemporary times, so the 19th century. And they're just crazy people, usually with, with drink on board, not always doing murders and I'm not a massive fan of that but um, I do like these kind of gothic stuff so okay why is it gothic world you know we've got a castle we've got all that minstrels and buffoons and all that kind of stuff classic gothic things and death and despair and it's all a bit larger than life isn't it it is really a fantasy story and you can see how that sword and sorcery in fantasy you know, like Lord Dunsany King of Elfland's daughter and then people like William Morris and then you come to Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Michael Moorcock, and then onto the fantasy stuff, the Game of Thrones, the grim dark stuff. I'm actually watching the Witcher series at the moment, and um, how that started was I played Gwent, the Witcher card game, when Sheila wasn't very well. And so I, it was a very stressful time, so I kind of lost myself in that game. I never played The Witcher, and somebody said I should watch it. I watched the first one, didn't get on with it, and I'm quite enjoying it now. It's very light. But, you know, anyway, a D, a D version, a derive from that. But, yeah, gothic, lovely. So he wrote this, interestingly, in 1842, and it was published in Graham's magazine. Graham obviously let other people read his magazine, which was very kind of him. And uh, Poe was paid $12 for that. Now, there is a wonderful, they can do anything on the internet, can't you? There's a wonderful app on the internet that allows you to calculate what that would be in today's money. So I put it in and it came out with a startling $482 US. Wow, that's a lot of money for a story that only lasts 16 minutes. It's a good one, but um, it is a lot of money. No wonder he's doing well. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It really was worth that. And that, that was the value of the money he got. I'm not saying it wasn't worth that. You know what I mean? Did he really have $482 in his pocket? This is, to the British listeners, it's 300 and me. That's £353 sterling. Or it occurred to me to calculate what that would be in Scots, pounds, Scots. So that's £4,236 Scots. Because Scots money was terminated on the Act of Union. Great shame. And it was uh, 12 
pound Scots to one pound sterling. And another thing, sterling, what is the origin of the word sterling? So you have sterling silver, don't you? And you have pound sterling. And it's from Easterling because the Hanseatic League, which were a, a, a group of traders in the um, Renaissance period around the Baltic and North Germany, they were the the boys, the bee's knees. So what they gave you was good quality. So sterling just meant, he's of sterling stuff, just means you're Easterling, but really you, it's good quality because it came from the Hanseatic League. So there you are, a little extra fact. So the story, it, it always amuses me how people will get a famous story like this. If, if somebody else had written it, nobody would have given it two minutes thought. But because it's Poe and Poe became famous, people in literature departments of universities um, make their careers arguing about stuff. So one of the things they argue about is what was the actual disease? And people have said at the time of the story, Poe's wife was suffering from tuberculosis. And although it's he's making a little bit of a comeback, but mostly in the Western world, it's wiped out tuberculosis, but it was a great killer consumption and you know the the cough onto the white handkerchief of the spots of blood so i think um you know maybe and then people say well was it bubonic plague or was it you know ebola virus but the truth is he made it up you just that's it end of he wasn't really it doesn't represent anything in real life it just represents a fantasy story so i'm really sorry if that's ruined the career but the people who've written about that have already got their um professorships and they're doing all right and the other thing they argue about is the cult there are seven rooms why seven is there an occult significance is there a psychological significance maybe maybe why the all different colors why those colors what does it represent some kind of um progression of uh of orphiatic progression of the spheres or some mystical significance of the um the mysteries you know uh, and uh, the, and I think, yeah, it's just made up. It's just because he likes it. it. He sat there and he, now, of course, did that? Did he choose those colours because of some prompting of his subconscious? And why was that? Well, you know, I don't know. He maybe just made it up. So because it sounded nice. But you can you can spend some time discussing this and feel free, please, to put the comments what, why you think. Because I do miss some things, you know. What what? No, it's true. Um, because, you know, Sheila was saying to me this morning, what's this, what's it I'm answering? And then she said, what are, what are um, jugged red peppers? I said, no idea, just red peppers in a jug, I guess. But uh, there may be some technical significance, but I didn't know. So I don't know, there are things I don't know. Now, you know, um, we did the Walter Delamere story, Out of the Depths, and I'm like, oh, I wonder what that's about, is it about? Because I was on a different track, I was thinking of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's Deep Ones, those fishy things with the big feet. But of course it's De Profundis, isn't it? It's a, a psalm. Um, De Profundis clamavi, from the depths I cry to, to thee, O Lord. So yeah, I missed that. And there's some other things and people go, oh yeah, and the other one we did um, um, about the music one in Cornwall, the music box, and uh, this this woman is called La Pucelle, which was a nickname for Joan of Arc. And I'm like, oh God, I didn't get that, you know. I've, I'd cops when you say, I remember, but I didn't know then. So these, your comments are, are valuable and they do teach me things. So keep them coming. I do, I do enjoy them. And also keep the um, story recommendations. I, I, I used to wonder, will there come a point when I've read all the stories or all the stories worth reading? Um, I'm not quite there yet. I think there's quite a lot to go. I mean, because some people go, oh yeah, read such and such. Oh, that's, a, that's a, like a 
200,000 word novel. It'll take 22 hours to hit, to listen to, which takes, would take 44, 66 hours to record, which is full time for a lot. So they're big works. The issue of copyright comes up again. People say, read this, read JK Rowling. Nobody's actually said that, but uh, yeah, JK might have something to say about me stealing her work. And, uh, and the people who have got the rights to the audiobook might go, hey, don't do this for free. We want people to flip in, pay for it. Bigly. So bigly's a good word, isn't it? And what about the clock, the ebony clock? Poff. I think it's about, um, and I think it's fairly obvious, it's about the inevitability of death, no matter how proud you are, king. And a king, of course, represents uh, the greatest, the human with the greatest power. But even he, with all these uh, money, and his security and all these acolytes and servants cannot stop death. And that is a lesson to us all. But yeah, so I think it's something about that. Well, I think it's obviously about that. I'm not sure about the ebony clock. I think the ebony clock is just counting down the hours. It's like um, the drum roll, boom. The death march, boom. Boom. When I did, um, you know, I've said before, I used to write, write these scripts for these live action role playing things back in the day. And it was quite useful to have something happen at a particular time every hour throughout the night because people would come to expect it and each time was worse and it would ramp up the tension. So there we go. 16 minutes, I reckon, that story. So it wasn't bad, was it? Very, very simple story structure as it would have to be. But neat, nothing spare, nothing extra to it, you know, which I think good. I'm not, that isn't a criticism. So first of all, the Red Death is introduced. What is it? Introduce the King Prospero, great name, by the way. Then he retreats from the world that we have the Abbey description. Now we have the description of the seven rooms, all very linear. And then we have the masquerade ball, all very, very linear. Then the entry of death and then the supernatural demasking at the end and he's dead. Very simple, very nice. I like it. I like Poe. And it allows me to go a little bit over the top as well. So that's about it. It reminded me of a story we did called The Dog Endures Etching by Marco Denevi, Italian. No, he actually was of Italian ex extraction, but he was uh, Brazilian, I think. You'll find that if you search for that. The dog endures etching. And it's also a kind of a medieval death story like this. So if you like that, you probably like this. I might put a link to it from this one. And it also reminded me of Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley, which I've taken the liberty of recording and it allows me to plug my new classic poetry channel. So why are you doing a classic poetry channel, Tony? Well, the reason is I like doing it. And maybe one day enough people will like it. Of course, there are artistic reasons, there are personal reasons. Please go and subscribe to it. But there are also financial reasons because once you get a thousand subscribers, I think we've got 22 on the poetry thing, so we've got a little way to go. Um, YouTube will allow you to monetize it and so I get a proportion of the revenue from the ads they show. Before a thousand, they just show the ads and take the whole lot themselves. Fair, fair enough, they set up the YouTube channel, I'm not complaining. Because the Classic Ghost Story podcast, even though the subscribers keep going up, the views really don't, it's fairly steady. And, and I find that with the podcast itself. So the podcast bounces around, it's slowly climbing, but very slowly, about 8,000 to 10,000 a week and more about towards the 10,000 in the winter, dropping down to about 8,000 in the summer. That's the podcast. The listens on YouTube, the views listens, it's hard to, it's hard to compare because I think it's 36,000, but I'm not sure of the time frame. 
so, but it, it's not growing, you know. And so uh, I thought, well, I'll do another channel and have another stab at it, and maybe maybe the classic poetry will attract people who aren't going to listen to the classic ghost stories, and it will it'll help me just do more of this. The other thing I've been I bought these cameras. And I thought I was going to be in YouTube and do videos. And I said, if you go back, you'll find there's a period when I'm doing lots of videos. You know, the, the, the word that came back from people was don't bother. But I'm like, oh, I like, I've got my cameras now. I've really enjoyed the photography. So I've been going out into nature. Some of the stuff I use is stock, but the bulk of it now is stuff that I've taken. I've gone out with my camera and just taken the woodland or the sea view and just used that as a visual to the... The thing, so it allows me that creativity as well to go out and do some nice uh, video work. So the classic poetry, yeah. I'm going to put that in now and then I'm going to come back and going to talk to you about life. Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley. I met a traveller from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. You see how I drop my voice when I do narrating. So, Ozymandias. That would be, be normal. Ozymandias. And then I drop it to Ozymandias and do it slow. That's because there's a guy called, oh, what's he called? Tom Bedlam, and he does all these deeply motivational poems on YouTube and they get like millions of views. And he does it in a very ponderous voice. It's nice. It's good. It's good. It's good. Again, I'm not complaining or, you know, he's good. I like, I like, I like. I'd like to be him. I want to be him. Not, I mean, I don't necessarily want his whole life, but, you know, I wouldn't mind his views. Right, okay, letter from Carlisle. So, weather's been mixed here. Been home, haven't been away. My mother, as you know, was in hospital. She, I took her home. She is pleased a bit. She was in hospital and there was a ward that she really liked and she liked all the nurses. And then she got moved and she didn't like it to the heart centre. She didn't like it. And because the ladies on, she said, these women either side of me are deafer than I am. So she couldn't have a conversation with them. And there was a TV looking at her. Her neighbour had hogged the TV control. So she'd said to this neighbour, do you mind if we put Wimbledon on? Because my mother is a big Wimbledon fan. I remember being a little boy coming in from school and there it was. Tock, 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 tock. I can't say the point in it myself. For weeks, weeks. Uh, but she'd sit, she'd do the ironing and watch it. And she's watched it every year of her life, as, as long as there's been TVs, I think. And uh, so she was very miffed because she came back from a scan and the woman had put it back to some stuff and she said, and she doesn't even watch anything. She can't hear it and she just switches channels. Anyway, so she was pleased to get home and we were pleased because, I mean, they told us she told us she was going to die about four weeks ago. And she's right as rain now. So I took her home, done some shopping for her. And she said nice little things. She said, oh, you're a lovely man and you look after your old mum. So that really made my day, actually. So she's better. 
Um, I haven't. I saw Shade Monday, Tuesday. Shade is a lazy dog now. As she's older, she doesn't want to go for walks and stands behind me and looks at me and I'm going, come on, we're going for a walk. And then if I'm on the phone, as I was trying to sort the car insurance, because you remember the catalytic converter was, that's all fixed as well now. Everything seems to have, at the beginning of June, everything went boop. It was like an astrological event and everything in my life went not very good. And then things are just clearing up now. So that's very good, isn't it? Um, I went to Shap Abbey yesterday with the Westmoreland Dowsers. So I'm not really a dowser. You may have picked up that Sheila's all into this energy stuff and she does Reiki and she's got her own um, practice whereby she has clients come to the house. I can't play any music when they come. I have to sit upstairs and she's no motorhead. Um, okay, fair enough. I said, I said, what about a little bit of Nick Mulvey? So gentle, through headphones only. Okay, that's fine. So anyway, we went to Shap Abbey and it was, it was a beautiful day. It's a beautiful place, very remote. I'm, I can't really do dowsing. I, nothing really happens. Uh, a guy, let, a very kind man, let me his own dowsing rod, and it was spinning round. But I, I don't know whether that's just, I don't know what it what it does. Is it the wind? It wasn't the wind. Is it some kind of micro muscle stuff, or is it truly the earth energies? Anyway, they were lovely people. They were lovely, lovely, lovely people. Sheila's desperate to go again. She got loads of stuff about all sorts, and but not me. So I had a nice sit down by the Abbey and later on we went and had a walk around the um, Standing Stones. There used to be a mass, massive megalithic complex there, but the, the farmers blew it all up and moved it all. So there's one or two stones, not much left. But yeah, it was a nice day and we came back via Askham in the sun. Askham's a very beautiful village. And then we came home, we had a nice day. So everything's not too bad. We're going out later today because it's her, the week after her birthday, so we're going out with her sons. I still travel to Whitehaven. I've been living in my mother's house when she's been away. I haven't been living there. I've been staying there one night because where I work physically is um, much closer to where she lives than where I live now. And so on the Wednesday night, I used to go and keep her company. But as she wasn't there, I thought it was, it was a funny thing. I thought it was important to keep um, the house alive by being in it and watching TV and cooking. And uh, not that I cook much, but I eat things, cold things. Uh, and, um, you know, taking the bins out and doing all that kind of stuff, switch, having a shower. So it was keeping the house alive, and now she's back there, so that's all right. I also, um, I've been for all this year going to see a therapist. So I go, I travel to Grasmere, which is about an hour and a half's drive. Beautiful, right in the middle of the Lake District near Wordsworth town, and that's been really beneficial. I used to think, well, here I am, a mental health professional, and I talk about the values of therapy to people, which I'd believe in. And I don't do it myself, so I'll do it myself. And very valuable. Um, so yeah. Yeah, anyway, I nearly got into a work mode then, a patter then, so I won't do that. Okay, so remember the classic poetry podcast, if you're interested. Nip over, subscribe. We'll begin our slow climb to a thousand. And uh, hopefully there'll be things that you like. I hope you're all well. I am well. I am actually really well. Um, I hope you're well as well. Okay, bye. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?